almost forgot, I see a few very young ones here. I know that Pastor Peter has been in the habit of having some questions that the children knew answers to afterwards, and I was thinking I might have to run to the store today, but we have a supply of Skittles here. So, children, if you have uh, either very sharp memories or something to write with and are able to write, I'm going to mention four questions here for you to pay attention to. And uh, Tim, if you want, you can come up too, but I'm going to ask you questions that I'm not going to give in advance. For anyone that I think is too old, I'll just simply ask questions that I haven't announced, and if you can answer them, you'll get Skittles too. Uh, but one of them is, what enemy nation did Samson defeat for Israel? What enemy nation did Samson defeat for Israel? Another question. What was the name of Samson's mother? What was the name of Samson's mother? Third question. Is Samson one of the Bible's heroes of the faith? Is Samson one of the Bible's heroes of the faith. And finally, our fourth question. Did Israel have a king while Samson was alive? Did Israel have a king while Samson was alive? Now, you children have a very distinct advantage if you get right answers. I don't have a clue how many Skittles Peter is in the habit of giving out. I don't know the program too well, so I might be inclined to be overly generous, but your parents will have to deal with it if I am. We got a lot of Skittles here for the number of kids I see, that's all I can say, so I'm not going to be worried about giving too many away. Well, I chose our text tonight. My introduction here is going to be a little bit about just God's word. First, and then I'll get into really what I'll say would be the sermon. But uh, last week, Sunday evening, late, Peter texted me and asked me if I would preach tonight. I said yes. And then I thought, um, well, what will my topic be? And I just thought, well, we'll see what tomorrow morning's daily reading is, and God probably will have something for me there. And that's really where this sermon then came from. Um, I am reading through the one-year Bible daily plan. It follows fairly closely to the straight gate plan. At the end of the year, you've read the whole Bible. Same thing. I do it because I enjoy the fact it mixes in Psalms and Proverbs each day. Goes through Psalms twice in the year. Just a couple of aspects of it I like. And so um, I was reading then on May 2nd and... This passage came from that reading. And also, the interesting thing was how the other passages, the New Testament portion, the Psalms portion, really, to me, interrelated and, and spoke. They, they all spoke to one another. And then this morning, uh, Kevin's sermon, which I appreciated very much, um, I think there's a lot of even crossover and interrelatedness between that and what I wanted to say was that maybe all of you are regular readers of the Bible 
on a daily basis, and I don't know who may be listening that isn't here today, but I just would encourage anyone who isn't that it's just a tremendously profitable thing to be in the Word of God, because each one of us individually ultimately answers to God, and we need to be getting fed from his word ourselves. And, you know, the word of God really, it's like a spiritual diamond with just a multitude of facets. And unlike a physical diamond, which reflects light, the diamond of God's word emits light. That's a key difference, just like the New Jerusalem where it's light. It doesn't need an external light source because it's light. It's Christ, it's light, it's God. The same way the, the diamond of God's word, it emits light. And the Holy Spirit, in prism-like fashion, separates the light that emanates from each facet of God's word into a collage, into its collage of hues and tints and tones and shades onto his palette. And then he produces a masterful painting to perfectly illumine our understanding or more accurately, to enlighten our spirit so that we know how God would have us speak and act in response to the circumstances and challenges we are facing at that moment. This word is multifaceted because the Holy Spirit takes it and uses it to speak differently to each one of us depending on our abilities, our circumstances, that's the Holy Spirit's work. And really, that's what it means to say a Christian is Holy Spirit-led or filled with the Holy Spirit. It's that word, living and active word of God being applied to the circumstances that we're facing at the time and God directing us through that of how we should respond. And a verse that I think just beautifully summarizes it is Psalm 36, verse 9. It says, for with thee is the fountain of life, in thy light shall we see light. And certainly there's a place for searching the scriptures to find a verse or verses that shed the light of God's truth on any particular subject. I think that's somewhat what the Bereans, you know, the Bereans were checking scripture to make sure things that Paul was teaching was accurate. Uh, but the problem, at least for me, and maybe it's a problem for others too, is that it can easily tend toward becoming a work of the flesh, uh, a rendering of what I know or what other people I may look up know about the word. And I see it much like when Jesus uh, told the disciples not to worry what they would say when they would be brought before governors and kings for a testimony against them. We can be confident that through our routine, personal, daily devotions and scripture reading, the Holy Spirit will open our eyes to the truths we'll need to navigate the segment of life he has ordained for us to travel that day, no matter what unexpected barriers or turbulence we may encounter. So I just, I mean, I'm just constantly amazed when I do the daily readings how the individual readings will relate to one another and to whatever the circumstances of life that I'm facing at that time, and the next year when I read the same passages, it's like a whole nother set of truths or applications. And um, 
that's the work of the Holy Spirit with the living and active word. And so talking about our subject for tonight, uh, Samson uh, forgot to mention the title. The title is Samson, A Mother's Worst Nightmare, A Hero of the Faith. The period of the judges in Israel was a time of confusion. It was a time of rampant idolatry. It was a time of survival of the fittest. And increasingly, it seemed, the heathen nations were more fit than God's chosen people, the 12 tribes of Israel. Samuel wrote the book of Judges around 1000 B.C. The book of Judges covers approximately 300 years from the death of Joshua until the rise of the monarchy in Israel. Because Israel did not have a king during this tumultuous time, several leaders, judges, are raised up to govern the people of Israel. Among those judges was Samson. His story comprises chapters 13 to 16 of Judges. The first point I want to focus on is God's plan. Samson was chosen by God for a special purpose, to break the Philistine stranglehold on Israel. We see that in Judges 13, 5. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son. This is the angel speaking to Manoah's wife, who became the mother of Samson. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And in Judges 14.4, But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord, that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So again, Israel had a variety of enemies, but at this time of Samson, it was the Philistines that were really domineering over Israel. And God chose Samson as his vessel to break that. Samson's father, Manoah, and his wife, whose name is not given to us, it's just curious, but we don't know the name of Samson's mother, we do know the name of his father, Manoah, are of the tribe of Dan. They have been barren. But then God's angel visits first the wife, then both her and Manoah. In a sequence of high drama events, there is a discourse between the three. The conception of Samson is foretold, and instruction is given that Samson is to be under a Nazarite vow from the moment of conception to the day of his death, symbolic of his being specially imbued with the Spirit of God. It's interesting, um, two other Nazarites from the womb in the Bible, Samuel, who was very close in that period of judges to Samson, um, it's stated that 
his mother Hannah vowed to the Lord that if she gave him a man-child, that no razor would come upon his head. And then John the Baptist um, also. So Samson's got some strong company, in a sense, in, in, in that characteristic. Thinking the angel is a prophet of God, Manoah and wife offer him a special meal. He refuses the meal and instead instructs Manoah to make a burnt offering unto the Lord. It is only when that burnt offering is made and the angel ascends upward in the flame, never to reappear, that Manoah and his wife realize that he was an angel of the Lord, not merely a prophet. Understandably, these parents were overcome with fear at that moment. It says in Judges 13, verses 20 and 22, And Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. But sound reasoning by Manoah's wife quickly prevailed as she pointed out that the Lord would not have accepted their offering nor told and showed them those things just heard and seen if his purpose were to kill them rather than bless them. At that point, I imagine Manoah and his wife began to excitedly announce their experience to everyone in town. Do you know what the Lord's angel told us about our son that will soon be in Mrs. Manoah's womb? They had to be thrilled. And in the early years of Samson's life, it seems that his parents had every reason to be ecstatically proud of their son without reservation. The scripture record gives no cause to temper optimism regarding little Samson's character or future prospects. Certainly nothing akin to the egregious incidents that are vividly portrayed in his later years. Rather, we are told in Judges 13, verses 24 and 25, and the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So we here we have the portrayal of Samson as a little child, looking like the prodigy, I guess, that he was foretold to be, prophesied to be. Sounds like he was a blessed child and probably well-behaved. So we've talked a little bit about God's plan for Samson. It was a plan for him to rise up, be a judge of Israel, and overcome this oppression of the Philistines. And now we're going to take a look at his parents' pain as Samson grew into adulthood. The transition is often subtle, but again, I certainly speak for myself, and I may, I think, speak for most of us, in that we can slip all too easily from faith in the Lord to faith in a person. We must diligently guard against this tendency, which is the natural course of our flesh. In John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it tells us, now when he, this is Jesus it's speaking of, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, 
Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. God did not scorn Samson. Neither did he put any trust in Samson. Rather, his trust was entirely, exclusively in himself. Fully knowing Samson's flagrant character flaws before they ever manifested themselves publicly, God chose to use Samson mightily as a vessel of mercy, as a powerful demonstration of God's strength made manifest through human weakness. Likewise, Jesus does not scorn true believers, those who are born again by faith in his name and his righteousness alone. But he knows the weakness inherent in every man's flesh. And that precludes Jesus from placing his trust, his hope, his reliance on any man. So why did God use Samson? Why did he make his godly parents endure what must have been tremendous pain and embarrassment over their son's repetitively sinful behavior? Every parent of children at some point goes through difficult times. At least every parent I've known, Joyce and I, I'm sure each one of you, there are always challenges. Some greater, some more severe, some maybe lesser, but there are challenges. And so I think we can relate to probably the embarrassment at times that Samson's parents must have endured with him visiting harlots, choosing as his first wife a Philistine woman. His parents were like, why are, are there not, is there not a good woman in Israel that you could find? Do you have to marry a Philistine? You know, he was clearly controlled by that area of his flesh quite strongly and very publicly. So why did God use Samson? Why did God make his parents go through the pain that they must have gone through with him? And, and Israel even went through pain because of him. Why did he not give them a man-child such as Joseph or Daniel or Joshua or Caleb? Until we are in heaven, not one of us will be able to answer that question. Having considered both God's plan for Samson and the pain Samson's parents experienced because of his fleshly behavior, we will now ponder God's eternal purposes. And this is really the heart of the matter. What I was saying about the tendency to put our faith in a man I know I can have the tendency to look at a Joseph or a Daniel who we know were sinners because the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I know I still have a tendency to look at those people. I mean, I have a son named Joseph, a son named Daniel. I have five boys and didn't name one of them Samson. And there's a reason, right? I wouldn't want 
to name my son Samson. Okay, and I don't see any Samson sitting out here, but if there is one, that's okay. You know, I mean, but we, we tend to look at the man rather than at the God behind the man. So we either think that this was random, that Samson just, but we know it wasn't random. I mean, his birth, though not miraculous in the sense of Mary's you know, conception without knowing a man, but still, barren parents for a long time. Angel comes and tells them, you're going to have a son. Then they have a son. This angel ascending in the flame of the sacrifice. Clearly, God was at work here. This wasn't some random chance judge that raised, got raised up in Israel. That's just crystal clear. So, why Samson? In Romans 9, verses 20 to 23, it says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. I want to focus for a moment on these last two verses. First, uh, verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? This fits the Philistines in this story to a T. The Philistines have been domineering over God's people for a long time. God endured that for a long time. I'm sure there were many in Israel. God, why, why, you know, why are you allowing this? But we see that he wanted to make his power known. A lot like what Kevin was saying today. When we see the wicked and we see that they're prospering, we can be tempted to think that God's not paying attention, God doesn't care, all kinds of things that aren't true. It's just that we don't know perfectly the mind of God and we don't see the grand purposes that he's effecting. Verse 23 says, and that he, and that's speaking of God, might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. To me, that speaks of Samson. God was very merciful to Samson. And he had clearly prepared afore, before he was even conceived, for him. And do we not know that every aspect of Samson's character was known to God? Again, God didn't give Manoah and his wife a Daniel, a Joseph, a Joshua, a Cable, Caleb. He gave him, gave them a Samson. He knew what he was doing. 
So we see in the story of Samson versus his enemies, the Philistines, a parallel to the victory Jesus won on the cross, a victory that was snatched from what appeared to the eyes of man to be victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. In Judges 16, verses uh, 21 and 22, excuse me here, but I just uh, see that I flipped my pages out of order. Or, worse yet, I lost one, which thankfully I did not. Um, in Judges 16, verses 21 to 20 through 25, I will read. But the Philistines took him, Samson, and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass, when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. So we have a pretty grim picture at this point. Samson, this once mighty man who literally ripped gates and the posts and bars out of the wall of the city and carried them up onto a hill. Samson, this man with the jawbone of an ass, slew a multitude of Philistines. Um, Samson, who just seemingly couldn't be stopped, is now sightless, and because he gave away the secret of his strength, and Delilah gave it to the Phil Philistines. She shaved his head. He was taken captive and made subject to his enemies. And is this not a picture of probably each one of us at various times in various ways? Certainly of a myriad of people that we interact with on a daily basis. Just strengthless, hopeless seemingly, and powerless. And that's the situation that we see Samson in at this point. But I, I exhort you and all Christian brothers and sisters to take comfort in this truth. No matter what may be your weakness and inability, no matter how frequently you have stumbled, no matter how far you have fallen, your gracious Heavenly Father stands ready to forgive you and to pour out his abundant mercy. I love that little line, verse 22, in what I just read that says, Howbeit the hair of Samson's head began to grow again after he was shaven. His being shaven brought him down to the absolute lowest point of his life. Again, mocked by his enemies, being abused by them, publicly 
used for the sport of the people as they sat there and were pridefully praising their false gods, knowing that Samson's God was Jehovah. So here's Samson, and maybe in some ways, here is me, here is you. But God, who is faithful, started Samson's hair to grow again. Nobody else thought about it. The big lesson is this. God's hall of faith, memorializing what we call the heroes of the faith, is filled not with superpower men and women. No. 100% of the occupants of the hall of faith, of the heroes of faith hall, were hopeless sinners. And what I mean by that is without the mercy of God, exclusively because of God's grace and mercy, would any one of them ever have eternal life in heaven with God? There is not one that, that would. Not one of them considered on their own merits is any more or any less worthy of acclaim and honor than is Samson. And I admit, I, I speak that, and I speak it as truth that I do believe, and I know it to be true. And yet I also acknowledge in my flesh, my heart, I still kind of tend to have Samson on a lower tier, if you will, sort of like the Olympics. You got, you know, the champion that's on the high stand, and then second place, a little bit lower stand, third place, and... You know, you have Dante wrote the Inferno and all the supposed various circles or levels of hell. Well, God says you're either saved and you're going to spend eternity with him in perfection or you're unsaved and you're going to spend eternity in hell, in utter darkness, gnashing of teeth and wailing and moaning forever and ever and ever. So my point is, again, that Samson didn't slip into the heroes of faith any more than any of the others. Each one of them is there exclusively because of the gifts God gave them, because of the opportunities God gave them, and yes, because they placed their faith in Jesus or in the living God. In conclusion and application, of what we can learn from Samson's story. Uh, mothers and fathers who stand by God's grace in the faith of Jesus Christ, all of you live in the real world. Not all of your children rise up daily and call you blessed. If you were believers at the time, you prayed for your children before they were born, perhaps even before they were conceived in the womb. You have prayed for them continuously since birth, and you will continue until your death or theirs. Persist with hope and belief because of the Lord's character, not because of the character of your son or daughter. And I want to repeat that because I know that it is very easy to become hopeless when we look at a person who has perhaps 
than repetitively for a long, long, long time doing things that are just clearly against the word of God and the will of God against the teaching and exhortation of parents. And for those who aren't parents, whoever may be under your tutelage or under your ministry or under your influence, it's just imperative that you continue in hope and belief to do what God has called you to do, to have that love that Christ had who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. And you've got to do it because of the Lord's character, not because of the character of your son or daughter or whoever it is in your life that maybe you're ready to just give up on and maybe you're ready to tell them so. A couple of sections of scripture I want to read. Luke 11, 9 through 13. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, Will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And then Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I think of Samson there when I read that. When it says, he hath not dealt with us after our sins. Ultimately, God gave Samson that final victory, which was the greatest victory over his enemies of his entire life. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. How else could Samson be in the Heroes of Faith chapter except that God removed his transgressions as far as the east is from the west? Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Amen.